0: All right, while everybody is taking their seats, the only announcement I know of, because I haven't been here in a while, is that we're going to have a picnic this Saturday, and I'm pretty sure it's going to come off this Saturday, and it's not going to rain, and the weather looks like it's going to be pretty close to perfection, so I hope everybody can make it, and uh, that'll start about 11 o'clock on on Saturday, or the... That's right. And then daylight savings time. So you get an extra hour of sleep Saturday night. So that means you can afford to come out and spend a lot of energy at the picnic. All right. You got that. So we uh, will pick up an extra hour of sleep so nobody can. uh, It's always fun because I think that's when you see people show up an hour early for church on Saturday, Sunday morning because they forgot to set their clock. So. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand for ever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. And then I will open us in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we can be here this evening, that we can be refreshed by a study of your word coming to grips with an understanding of how all of the pieces fit together, all the parts interconnect to one another and how your word stands uh, together and it is uh, consistent in a way that can only be the result of an omnipotent omniscient god behind the writing of scripture so father we pray that as we study today you'll give us great insight tonight in how these parts come together towards the end of this opening section that we've been studying and uh, that we can see how the foundation is laid in these first 11 chapters of genesis And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I hope you continue to pray for the people we know in Israel, for the uh, guides that we use, for travel uh, travel agent that we use, Lindy. And uh, they continue to send me lots of information and updates about what is going on over there. And we just need to be a prayer. It is not close to winding down. This thing, I believe, is going to last a number of months, and it will continue to ramp up. Today, the Houthis, y'all know who the Houthis are. Y'all know all about them, don't you? You know, I feel like a am teaching ninth grade world history to a bunch of 14-year-olds who haven't a clue where Vietnam is. I mean... I knew 14-year-olds who thought Vietnam was down by Cuba. And that was back when we got educated in school, okay? So now the Houthis are a radical faction that are financed by Iran down in Yemen. Yemen is where, where to find Yemen, you look for somebody who knows how to give an enema to the world, and you will find Yemen. Think about it. And these are the worst of the worst down there. And they fired a ballistic missile today at Israel. And for the first time, they use David Sling. Iron Dome is short range, takes out short range missiles. David Sling takes out uh, uh, mid, medium range ballistic missiles. And then they have Arrow, which is to, designed to take out intercontinental ballistic missiles. So they for the first time today last night they took down a ballistic missile with uh, with david sling so this this is not getting better it's not improving and the opposition that is and i told you about this remember uh, 3 weeks ago i said in 3 or 4 weeks there's going to be a lot of calls on and pressure on congress and on other leaders to put pressure on Israel to back off. And we're seeing it already. And we've got to keep writing letters to congressmen, calling their offices, leaving messages, letting them know we're praying for them and that they need to stand firm and stay the course and let Israel do what Israel wants to do. We don't need to be trying to pressure them to do what the United States wants to do. We need to let them do what they need to do in order to provide for their own self-defense as any other nation in the world. The world wants to hold Israel to a double standard, but that's just part of the angelic revolt. We need to make sure that we stand firm, and we unfortunately have too many politicians and leaders in Washington from the top down who say one thing to the press and in public And practice just the opposite in private. Uh, they want to stand behind Israel, uh, when they stand up in front of the microphones, but then when they go back behind closed doors, they want to give money and aid to Hamas. And, um, we just have to pray God help us. All right, let's get into scripture. We're starting to get to where, Uh, We'll be coming up on Genesis 12 very soon, uh, within the next two or three weeks, and that's where we really see the key to human history, which is the Abrahamic covenant. But tonight we're in lesson seven. Uh, This is in the post-Noahic flood period, and the lesson title is Fill the Earth. We look here at our timeline. We have these uh, Old Testament events, which I've expanded a little bit to where we have now 13 Old Testament events. And we have added uh, two things to the uh, New Testament, I believe. And that gives us um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 New Testament events. So we've added um, three things there. So that is how we we are expanding this. So let's stand up. We haven't done this in a while. I don't even know if I can remember it. I didn't practice it while I was on vacation. You know, when pastors go on vacation, I often want to ask them, does that mean you have to read your Bible and pray when you're on vacation? I want to ask a rabbi, I say, what do you do on Shabbat? You're not supposed to work. How do you handle that? All right. Creation, fall. Flood, Tower of Babel, Call of Abraham, then we have the Exodus, and then the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and then the conquest, and then we have the United Kingdom, and then the divided kingdom, uh, where we have uh, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom of Israel, and then because both are disobedient, they are both sent out of the land, two hands, both North and South sent out of the land. And then there's just a partial return. That's where the Old Testament ends. The New Testament begins with the fulfillment of the Messianic promise. And you have the birth of the Savior, and then he is going to be crucified. Then he is buried for three days. Then he is raised from the dead. And then after 40 days, he ascends to heaven. And then he sends the Holy Spirit. You have the beginning of the church age. The church age ends at the rapture when Jesus comes in the air for the church. We're taken to be with, he- with Him in heaven. You have the uh, seven years of the tribulation, which ends with the second coming of Christ to the earth. He will establish His kingdom, and it will end after a thousand years with the great white throne judgment. Very good. Give y'all, give yourselves a hand. Okay. We looked at the creation. And uh, creation's a first event. Creation, fall, flood, uh, Tower of Babel. We're talking, starting to talk about the Tower of Babel tonight. You have the creator-creature distinction. Three things. We have the creator-creature distinction. The key is human beings, mankind is created in God's image. This is what distinguishes him. Angels are sentient beings. That means that they can think, they can reason, they have volition. But what sets us apart is God designed the human soul to rule and to reign over his creation as his uh, image. In the perfect world, he created the divine, three divine institutions that are uh, personal responsibility, responsible choice, second marriage, third family. And then came the fall when uh, Eve and then Adam disobeyed God and that brought sin into the universe. It brought sin into... Because when God created the universe, whatever Satan's fall was, it was excluded from this recreation, from having an impact on that. And so you have this whole thing changes once Adam sins. And that brings a huge... uh, huge impact especially on the human race because you have spiritual death which is spiritual separation from God the three divine institutions are all affected and there is the initial promise of a savior so it all boils down to human beings want to be God and determine uh truth determine their destiny determine their purpose for life determine uh right and wrong everything and that leads to all of the failures And then we had the flood. We saw that human evil grew so much during the period before the flood, a period of approximately 2,000 years, that uh, there was no limit. Uh, God said that the uh, imaginations of the human heart were were evil continuously. And then you have the fallen angel incursion where the sons of God take human wives in order to destroy the gene pool so the Savior can't come as a true human. Then God flooded the entire earth, destroyed absolutely everything, hit the reset button, and started over with the eight survivors from the ark, Noah and his wife, the three sons, and their three wives. Uh, when they got off the ark, we saw that they established a covenant with Noah, typically called the Noahic covenant. That may be hard for children to pronounce, but they can try. Uh, new world covenant because it's a new world. It's starting over. And then the establishment we saw of the fourth divine institution. So the first divine institution, I didn't change the name here, is responsible choice, and then marriage, and then family, and then the establishment of of uh, civil government. Now, in this chart, which you have in the notes, it's an excellent summary of the divine institutions. These first three divine institutions, all established at the time of the creation, uh, in terms of the creation, uh, Adam and Eve and their descendants were given the responsibility to take care of the earth under God's leadership. They were God's representatives to creation to learn everything they could about it and to expand uh, their use of all the incredible uh, resources that God has has established on the earth, all the natural resources, but after the fall, all of what they call nature, which I prefer to call god 's creation, is now flawed it 's fallen, it fights back there instead of Adam having no problems uh, cultivating the garden, it fights back with thorns and thistles and weeds, and so there is this this conflict with creation. It's no longer easy to fulfill God's mandate. After the flood, it continues to deteriorate. You sort of have perfect environment minus one from the fall to the flood, perfect environment minus two from the flood until the second coming of Christ. Marriage is a loving partnership. The, the wife is designed to be the perfect assistant and helper uh, to the husband as they together work to fulfill that creation mandate. They are to multiply and fill the earth. But after the fall, there's a conflict. There is the war of the sexes. There's fight over who's going to control the relationship. And then and when it comes to family, um, they're to train the children. But after the f- fall... Uh, there's there's problems and you have the development of sibling rivalry and the first murder. So marriage becomes dysfunctional, and uh, they took the fun out of out of life, and so it became dysfunctional. And you have a, a dysfunctional marriage, a dysfunctional families, and it all boils down to sin. It's not environment. That's what everybody wants to say today. It's the environment. It's the culture. No, it isn't. It's the sin nature. And people want to say human nature. In one sense, it's human nature, but it's fallen human nature. It's always sin. And we don't want to talk about it. We use all kinds of different terms, euphemisms, rather than just saying the problem is so-and-so is a sinner And they're disobedient to God. And as long as they follow their sin nature, they're going to have more and more trouble in their life. The only cure, the only solution starts at the cross. So then we get down to the period after the flood. The conflict between male and female continues and as well as the problem in families. There will be a new way to control sin because that did not exist before the fall, and that 's that fourth divine institution, civil authority, civil government, and it is to 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 limit evil through the the uh, exercise of the sword exercise of government. so now, as we get into the lesson seven, the issue is filling the earth, and this is the period after the flood. It, this period goes from the Uh, immediate post-flood period to the call of Abraham. There are four basic sections in this lesson. The first has to do with the lifespans. What happens to human lifespans? How long did people live before the flood? They lived around 900 years. After the flood, there's a radical shift and it's like everything else in the world, it goes through this uh, chaotic transition, uh, goes from one level of stability to another level of stability, and in between things are just uh, very rocky. Uh, so you see these these lifespans shift from approximately 900 years to approximately 100 years. And so you get a, a time period where, where people just... Uh, They lose all the knowledge because all of a sudden you have these the first three or four generations after the flood still live several hundred years and they all seem to die off within approximately um, just a few decades of each other. And the result is all of that knowledge, all of that skill, all of that wisdom dies out. And so you see a real shift into uh, ignorance. And so the people that come along. Uh, five or six generations after the flood look at those older generations as gods and goddesses. And that's part of where the myths come from. You also have the, another source of the myths is the um, is the sons of God coming down and uh, taking human wives. And you see that play out in lots of different uh, pagan uh, mythologies. Then the second section we'll look at is the advanced civilizations and that ancient man wasn't all that primitive. That is the standard view of evolution that man starts off and he can barely rub two sticks together and it takes... Uh, tens of thousands of years to get to the point where he finally figures out how to get a spark and start fire and all these other things. What we see in the Bible is just the opposite. Man starts with a high, very high skill level, very high technology, and then because of sin, it degrades and deteriorates. And because of the loss of uh, so much knowledge, when that, the first four or five generations after the flood die, then you're left with with uh, people who just don't know how to do what the ancient. We still can't figure out how they built the pyramids with the tools that we believe they had. I remember studying in military science in college and talking about you know the early forms of uh, of artillery and where you would have to uh, where you used um, use leverage and you would use you would use leather and to create a certain level of torque. And so you'd have these catapults that could throw uh, a rock that weighed half a ton, and you could throw it six or 700 yards. Well, we don't know how they did that with the tools they had. So those are, um, the question here we'll address is, was ancient man really primitive? And we'll look at some of these Ice Age world maps, and I brought the book with me here if anybody wants to look at it afterwards, and some of these maps, and then we'll uh, next time, we'll get into migration and then the development of this global amnesia. There's another chart here that comes out of the lesson, which is a good one to have and to think through, That the three columns represent the changes that take place in creation after the flood, and then it shows the pre-flood circumstances uh, in the middle column and then the post flood afterwards. One of the things that needs to be corrected, they have put in, uh, that in terms of the atmosphere, a possible water vapor canopy. I do not believe that's a viable solution. It's very popular back in the 60s and 70s, 80s, and that is what, what I taught. But, uh, Dr. Jody Dillo, who's written a number of other books, Reign of the Servant Kings, Final Destiny, several other things, um, had an engineering degree before he started Dallas Seminary after uh, majoring. I believe he majored in Hebrew in the Old Testament. But after his uh, THM, he worked on his uh, doctorate and his the title of his and it's still in print. The title of his doctoral dissertation was the Water Vapor Canopy and he did a basically a feasibility study on all the different theories of how this worked at the time, and he worked in conjunction with the engineering department at SMU. This was late 70s. Basically, any design of a water vapor canopy where the water vapor canopy was anywhere close to the earth would create temperatures too high to support life. So that really he really pretty much demonstrated that that it that it had to be something further out. There have been others like Russ Humphreys in his book, Starlight and Time. Uh, he worked at the uh, Sandia Laboratory for many years in, um, when he worked for the government in New mexico, and he 's got a theory based on um, uh, explanations and application of einstein 's theory of relativity. That you had got when the uh, universe was first created, it was very, very small, and at the edge of the universe, you had this water that was separated outside, and that as following creation, as the universe began to expand, then at the time of the flood, this water was brought in that 's just one of many theories as to try to explain this, so we have a difference you have a water some kind of upper level of waters, remember in Genesis chapter one, first day, God separated the waters above from the waters below, and the rachia, the atmosphere is in between, so that upper letter level of water is where uh, the flood waters came from. Uh, the watering of the earth prior to the flood was a mist and now it's through precipitation uh through rain and snow uh uh the, there were mountains there weren't very many mountains and valleys the valleys were lower and um, mountains were lower valleys were shallower and then uh after the tectonic shifts that took place uh leading up to uh the flood you had much higher mountains and much deeper valleys uh volcanic activity there's no evidence of volcanic activity uh, up until a certain point which is when we would identify that with the flood and then you have this just massive amount of volcanic activity uh taking place in th- many of the s- in the same geological layers after that and so that would have uh when you read in Genesis 6 it says the fountains of the deep were opened that's first. So you have this t- tectonic shift, you have these volcanic eruptions throwing volcanic ash into the upper atmosphere on which water vapor can condense and precipitate out, and now we have, uh, and it changed the whole water cycle. The yeah, oceans were warm prior to the flood, they're warmer after the flood, uh, the temperature was pleasant, you didn't have the cycles like we had this year, just think—three months ago, two months ago, it was 110. You never—you couldn't even remember what 45 felt like. And this morning, we—we we got close to it. Tomorrow morning, it's going to be 39, and almost made 39 in October, missed it by 24 hours. Um, glaciers, not mentioned. Glaciers develop because of the radical. Uh, fluctuations in weather after this massive flood event uh, land um, probably one continent. We can't say for sure, but there's evidence of that. And then all of that changed after the flood. Now, that's a good, good um, chart to use to especially to explain things to kids. Then we have a good chart here that works out the uh, ages. So we start with Noah and go down to Abraham. Abraham lives to 175 years. Noah lives 600 years. That's the year the flood took place. And then after that, he lived another 350 years. So, in what do we have? 10 generations? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Not counting Noah, you have 10 generations. In 10 generations, you go from a, almost a 1,000-year lifespan and it's cut by almost 10% down to 175 years. By the time you get to to Joseph, it's, it's closer to, uh, uh, and to Moses. Moses lived 120 years, so it, it really reduces. So you see these changes. Uh, Hamshim and Japheth are born around the time of Noah's 600th year. So they live about 600 years. And they, notice, he, he, Shem will die, I'm guessing, by scale here, somewhere around 20, uh, 2200, 2100 B.C. But his son li- dies before he does. His grandson dies before he does. His great-grandson dies just shortly after he does, But his great, 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 so we're looking at, what, one, two, three, four, fifth generation down, they're all dying about the same time that Noah died. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? They all die before Eber, Shelah, or Paxad, and Shem. Abraham lives based on, I'm going to qualify this, based on the numbers in the Masoretic text. Now, last year at the Chafer Conference, we saw that there's a lot of scholars are shifting their views that the numbers have been messed with in the Masoretic text, and the better numbers, which do not add a lot of time, the better numbers are in the Septuagint, adds about 1,100 years to the whole time frame. Now, I haven't gone back and reworked the charts on all of this according to the Septuagint numbers, but it uh, it wouldn't be a whole lot different than than this. So we see evidence of the flood. Now this is important because one of the reasons we talk about this is interlocked is because what we're saying is all the doctrines in the Bible, everything that's in the Bible is interconnected and interdependent and interlocked. So if you take, it's like building a wall with bricks. You pull out two or three bricks, the wall falls down. You change two or three doctrines. Oh, we don't believe there was a worldwide flood. It was just a local flood. We don't believe they lived that long. You take two or three different things that are in Genesis 1 to 11 out and say they didn't really happen, then things that are built on that later on uh, will collapse because the foundation has been shifted. Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9. Talking to God, you covered it with the deep, the tehom. Remember, God, um, uh, God, the Holy Spirit moved over the face of the deep in Genesis one two. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. So this is applying it to the flood. Uh, at your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. That is, the waters began to drain off and to dry. They had gone up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place where you founded them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over. That's a great verse. God has set a boundary. So next time you hear... Greta Thunberg talked about the fact that as we have global warming the water is going to rise up and flood all these major cities. This is a promise from God that there's a boundary that he has established that the waters won't go past. We're not going to see this. In fact, you you and I have both seen lots of photographs that have been taken over the last 100 150 years of of places from um, uh, Manhattan, New York different places at different islands where we can compare and you don't see any difference in the ocean levels from 150 years ago till today so this is uh god has established these boundaries that they may not return to cover the earth why won't they cover the earth again anybody know god made a promise you know, God, it, God is able to fulfill his promises. And that's one of the problems is a lot of people just don't think that God can do that. So here we have a choice that compares the, the ages of each of the, uh, pa- these patriarchs. So the pre-flood up to Noah all live in this time frame around 900 years. The post-flood people, uh, starting from Joseph on, their ages their lifespans stabilize out by the time you get into Exodus. But look at what happens in the transition period from immediately after the flood until you get down to the end of Genesis, it drops off radically. There's a lot of instability in every system, whether you're talking about lifespans or whether you're talking about um, various meteorological things such as ice ages and volcanic activity, things like that. There's a lot of uh, destabilization. And one of the things that you see is that when you chart these things out, that this goes from one steady state down to another steady state this is a, a pr- pretty much a what do they call that an exponential decay curve and it fits that you can t- take any number of things you can do a home experiment with kids where they you fill up a big tumbler with ice and then fill it with water put a thermometer in that and measure it and as uh, as the ice melts then you can record every 30 minutes what the temperature is, and you can chart it on a graph, and that's what you see here, is an exponential decay curve. So we don't see, we don't really envision Moses unless the, you know, what was it, the chariots, the uh, chariots of the gods came down to Mount Sinai and gave him a, a um, IBM calculator so that he could run the age numbers for all of the different patriarchs in order to make sure they fit an exponential decay curve. Uh, we just don't see anything like that happening unless he's recording actual historical facts. Shem lived to be uh, 600, and um, we read that Genesis 11.10, that he was 100 years old, and he um, he had begotten, uh, our fact it was two years after the flood. Shem 600, and he lived another 500 years. Uh, so, or he lived 100 years before he, uh, our fact was was born, and then he lives 500. So, if Shem died, this chart was made in 2018. If Shem died in 2023, then he would have been born in 1423. That's before Columbus was born. You just think if if nobody has died in those six hundred years, how how great the population would be. Somebody ought to figure that we we have a population now of almost what eight eight billion. It'd probably be somewhere around twenty billion if all those people still lived. So how how we get get to this first first box on. Um, on page four, uh, let me let me finish up on page three. So Shem's generation lasted a long time, and uh, he lived longer than the first twelve. Let me go back to that timeline. Okay, Shem would have lived longer than the first twelve dynasties of Egypt. And 24 of the 25 dynasties of the Sumerian kings all existed during his lifetime. And so for those of that generation and the generation down to his uh, grandson, uh, Sheila, or even his great-grandson, Eber, to those who came after from Peleg on, the older generation would look like gods they lived so long and look at what they knew look at what they had accomplished so Genesis 4.17 tells us of the level of civilization uh, prior to uh, prior to the fall that there was an advanced civilization Uh, after Cain uh, got married everybody says well who did Cain marry where did Cain get his wife Tommy Ice used to love to have fun with people on that well, who did Cain marry? He married his sister. People go, oh. well, n- because of the enormous gene pool that Adam and Eve were created with, there wasn't a problem with close relation intermarriage. But by the time you get to the time of the exodus, then you have a much more limited gene pool and you're going to start having problems with people who are too closely related making babies and they're going to have birth deformities and defects and everything else. So that's when there's a, first established a, a biblical principle of not marrying too closely. Uh, Abraham lies about Sarah, but it's only a half lie because she was his half sister. And you get the same thing happen uh, happen later on with uh, Isaac lying about uh, Rachel rachel's his cousin, so they they married very closely, but there wasn't a divine announcement on a prohibition there uh, at that point. So Cain marries one of his sisters and she gives birth to Enoch, and he built a city. He didn't go to Israel sometime and go buy a a Bedouin encampment. He doesn't build a Bedouin encampment. He doesn't build a tent city. You can go down to a place on the other side of Houston where the freeways run along, and you'll go down there and see all these homeless people putting up their tents. He wasn't building a tent city. He built a city, named it after his son Enoch. And Enoch has his son Arad, Erad, and Erad uh, begot Mahujael, and he begot Methushael, Methusael begot Lamech, and then Lamech took for himself two wives. So what happens to Cain? Cain gets jealous of his brother and murders his brother. It's the first murder in, in history. But then several generations later, Lamech is the first to break down uh, the monogamy principle in the first divine institution. and He takes two wives, and then uh, he gets jealous of somebody who makes fun of him, and he kills him, and then he brags about it. Also, you have the development of, um, uh, of the, the livestock, uh, Ada Javal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So they were the shepherds and the cowboys. Uh, his brother's name was Jubal. He's a father of those who played the harp and flute. Now think about what it takes to make a harp or to make a flute, having the right kind of of uh, l- l- strings, whatever you're going to use, whether it's some kind of an animal intestine or what, so that you can get the right musical notes and that you can adjust it, and it'll stay adjusted. All of those things. So they have to, they, they're musical geniuses and they're, they're geniuses working with the animals. And um, and then you get down to Zilla, who bore Tubal Cain, who's an instructor of craftsmen in bronze and iron. So when you study these archaeologists and they're talking about the period after the flood, they break it down. You have Bronze Age, you have early bronze, middle bronze, late bronze, and then you have Iron Age You don't have that in the early parts of Genesis. Bronze and iron are developed at approximately the same time because these people were geniuses. They had an IQ that goes way beyond all of us in this room probably added together. But that's been diluted through all of these different corrupt, fallen, sinful generations uh, ever since. So just phenomenal. In Genesis 5, 3, and 4, Adam lived 130 years, begot a son in his own likeness. What likeness is that? After his image. So that means it's in God's. That transfers. He's in God's image and likeness. Named him Seth, and uh, he begot Seth. The days of Adam were 800 years. He had sons and daughters. So 800 and 130 is 930. So you have on this chart uh, Cain builds a city. Four generations later, you have the development of those who are in animal husbandry and uh, rearing livestock, they're creating musical instruments, and they're forging metal. So you had a high level of civilization uh, very, very early on. Now, the next thing that is listed here um, after looking at all of these developments is some of the skills That were apparently present in the with um, Noah and his sons and sons and grandsons years. Uh, We know that they had to be incredibly smart because they. We have found uh, very ancient maps. Now these aren't the these maps that are very ancient. Uh, This one here is called the Piri Reis map. It's from 1513. But it was a copy of maps that were made that were uh, hundreds and hundreds of years older. And we can look at these maps and they were um, they were precise. So they they had the skills for latitude and longitude. When did Western civilization develop the ability to measure the longitude for their location in the ocean. When was it? 1760s, early 1770s. Up until then, if you were out at sea, you could only tell where you were relative to uh, north and south, but not east to west. You have to have exact chronometer to do that. And so they had a huge contest. If you ever read the book Longitude, that'd be great for those kids to read. And they, I think they did a film on it. Uh, Longitude tells the story of this, uh, um, of the contest that they held in Britain if somebody could create, could invent a clock that would not be subject to the elements. You know. So if you make it out of wood, what's going to happen if it's real humid? And if you make it out of different metals, what's going to happen if it's real humid? They're going to rust. They're not going to move as smoothly. So you have to use a number of different metals and a number of different woods in order to balance one another out and create a reliable timepiece. Because you have to have a reliable chronometer in order to measure uh, longitude. And so finally, the, the, the man, I think his name was Harrison. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, hmm? What? James. James Harrison? Yeah, something like that. Harrison anyway. If she and I agree, you know we're right. Okay. So um, but that's a great story to read. And the book is not very big. It's not like you're going to sit down and read an 800-page book. No, this is just a very small book. And it's fascinating to see how they, they did that. But this guy, this Piri Reyes map, which was drawn by a Turkish admiral, Piri Ibn Hajib Mehmed, it's known as the Piri Reyes map. Reyes is the title of admiral. And it depicts accurately the coastline of South America, which is the bottom left of the map. I couldn't make it any larger than that. So that's this area along here. Okay, that's the coastline, and, um, and it also has the coastline of an unfrozen Antarctica on the right. So that's over on this side, and the coastline is depicting what at that time in 1513 was frozen solid. So how did they know what the coastline actually looked like underneath all of the ice? He was copying a map and whoever drew who drew the original of these maps that he was using were people who knew exactly what it was like under the ice cap at Antarctica. And today we can use satellite different kinds of uh, imagery to take pictures, and we can map the land mass under, uh, under the ice cap of Antarctica and the rivers. And guess what? These, these maps reflect very ancient sources that had the riverbeds correct, had the mountains correct, and had the coastline correct. So that means somebody had to have seen it. Now, what we would speculate is that Adam's sons and grandsons developed these navigational skills so that they were able to sail the waters of the earth after the flood and they were able to draw these maps. And the idea that, that uh, Columbus was and people at that time thought that the earth was flat, they had charts and maps with them that had a lot of this information on them. So if Piri Reyes has this in 1513, that's 21 years after Col- Columba sails, right? Is my math correct? 21 years? But what he copied it from was much, much older than that. And nobody yet in Western, uh, uh, Western Europe had sailed over here. Magellan had not sailed yet. None of the others had sailed. They they didn't even know what what was, existed between them and um, and India and China. So these are incredible maps. Here's another one. Uh, these are all taken out of this book, The Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings by Charles Hapgood. Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings by Charles Hapgood. And so you have these this here's a modern map here of the shape of Antarctica, and you can see it has this same shape over here. and that's in the Orontus uh, Phineas map. Now I'm, I don't have the date uh, down here on that. Maybe it's, it, it's in the notes. Yeah, that's 1531. So this this shows that there were very ancient people who had an accurate understanding of the location of the continents and the rivers and the topography and that this was was passed on. Here is another map. It's in the notes, the Haji Ahmed map of fifteen fifty nine. And it too is uh, built from maps that were much older source. You have sort of a, a globe shape to the earth. The continents are in dark. You see here, there's the shape of Africa. Over here, you have the shape of South America. And up here, you have the shape of North America. This is a 1559 map. This is um, what? 67 years after Columbus. And they've, they've mapped, this is a map that has all the shape of the continents. They hadn't figured that out yet. Psalm seventy four seventeen says, You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So God is redefining climate. And he redefines uh, the seasons as a result of this. So there were very intelligent people that came off the ark, passed some of the knowledge down, a lot of it, during the first four generations or so, and then it began uh, to be lost. They built the pyramids. Today, we don't know how they did it with the tools they had, the precision. They needed to know trigonometry, and they needed to know geometry, and they needed to know all of these, be able to use all these different measuring devices, and they line up perfectly. Many of these uh, pyramids down in in Mexico are all lined up according to uh, various uh, various stars uh, in the sky, and at certain dates of the year, there's just absolute precision as to how these um, these will line up uh, in. These ancient civilizations like in Egypt, uh, uh, examples are given of uh, they could drill teeth. I don't know if they had no, no, was it Novocaine? I don't know if they had anything to kill the pain. I I don't know that I'd want some ancient Egyptian drilling into my teeth. I had a root canal, a couple of, everybody told me how bad a root canal was going to be. Y'all grew up in the dark ages. I mean, the the technology in dentistry today is just absolutely amazing. But so we have all of these different sciences that were known to them. Astronomy, nautical science, uh, trigonometry, map making, timekeeping, shipbuilding, all was there. And Noah knew a lot about making Making wine and growing grapes, and the right kind of temperature that was required uh, to grow the grapes, and uh, the right kind of uh, soil and drainage were all a, a, a factor in that. And so he was he was involved in this, and uh, and so there was a lot of things that they did in just a short time. A uh, hundred years ago, think about this in. My dad was born a hundred years ago this last month, and when he was born, they, they had what model A, model T's and model A's. Most people were still driving around on um, with horse and buggy, and I remember my grandfather talking about when they went out to one of his cousins' ranches out near Kerrville, they would have to stop at low water crossings, and they would get out and hold the flashlight, and then the Uh, the cars would go through the the water and come out on the other side, and then they'd they'd get back in the car and and go on to the next low-water crossing. That was 100 years ago. We put somebody on the moon, a man on the moon, several men on the moon. I don't think we could do it again with the clowns in charge now because they they don't believe in absolutes anymore. But uh, I'm just being facetious. So the advance in technology after the flood had to have been absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. But one of the things that happened is that the Earth went through this transition period that was that was incredible. We hear about the ice ages. So people ask questions about, well, what about the ice ages? Well, one of the things I learned many years ago, probably when I was in junior high, was back in the mid-20th century, I think it was, may have been earlier, may have been early 20th century, late 19th century, that they discovered and in, um, in, p- packed in ice in Siberia a number of, of uh, mammoths or mastodons, and they'd been flash frozen. How do you know that? Because when they thawed them out, the, the meat was fresh. And they served it in the Explorer Clubs in New York and London and Berlin and Paris. So you could go down and get a Mastodon burger. And the meat was only about 2,000 years old, but it was uh, just as fresh as it could be. And they don't have any answer for for that because they, the basics of all modern science is that everything continues at the same rate. They just took catastrophism out. Now that's coming back because that's the only way they can explain a few things. But what? But these ice ages occurred not uh, thousands of years apart, but hundreds of days apart, maybe two or three years apart. And you read in the scripture, and you hear, uh, you read about the famines that occurred at the time of Abraham, and then later. Famines that occurred at the time of Joseph uh, when he was in Egypt. And so you have these radical shifts in the climate. They had global cooling and global warming like would make Al Gore happy today. It was rapid. It was in just a few years it would go from one to the other. And the reason is is because of the changing temperature. So they have a chart in there which is helpful to explain. You have warm ocean and so the atmosphere is cooled. It's filled with volcanic ash, so it's shielding the earth from a lot of the sun. And so as the warm, moist air from the ocean goes up the uh goes up the mountainside, then it uh hits the cooler air. And forms clouds and then it precipitates out and it rains and snows and so you get, uh, the formation of ice. And these growing glaciers developed land bridges. And most people are familiar with the Bering land bridge going from Siberia to Alaska. But there were probably other land bridges that existed such as down in Southeast Asia, land bridges to, uh, the various islands. Uh, in uh, Southeast Asia, over to um, over to Australia, New Zealand, where the animals could move across the, could migrate across these land bridges, and uh, and establish new new homelands. And so, as they, um, as you had these uh, ice ages, the uh, sea levels would, would lower, and people could migrate from continent to continent. So here's a map showing the location of the ark, and you would have certain animals and people who would, uh, by the time of Tower of Babel and the creation of the different languages, human languages, they, people would be divided up into different language groups, and so they would isolate themselves from the others. This is the start of uh, various uh, tribal distinctions and ethnic, uh, ethnic distinctions. And so they began to scatter all over the earth because of the uh, just seeking a place of safety and refuge. A description of this kind of radical climate is in Job 30 verses 3 through 8 where we read, "...they are gaunt from want and famine, fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and waste." who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food. They were driven out from among men. Now this, people say, well, what about the cavemen? Well, the cavemen, it's been demonstrated in most cases, suffered from various vitamin deficiencies, various nutritional deficiencies. That's what's true with a Neanderthal man. I think he had rickets and a vitamin D deficiency. And so... Uh, they were driven out. They're, they're not in the chain of going from um, low level uh, intelligence and capabilities to a higher level. They were the ones who um, who you know sort of fell off the advancing uh, genealogical tree and got lost up by the wayside. So they're driven out from among men. They shouted at them as at as a thief. They had to live in the clefts of the valleys and caves of the earth and the rocks. Among the bushes, they brayed. Under the nettles, they nestled. They were sons of fools, yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from the land. So, on the one hand, you have uh, humans in difficult physical conditions trying to uh, survive. And then the evolutionary view is that these were more simplified forms. Uh, that that went forward. Job 40 says, "Look now at the Behemoth." Now, what's a Behemoth? There's a lot of debate on this. I've read commentaries that say, "Oh well, the Behemoth is 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 um, an elephant it's eating grass." Listen to the description. I've been up close and personal with some elephants. I know what they look like. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. I've seen some cedar trees that are 100 100 feet tall. I was just over in Louisiana. You see these really tall, 7,500 foot tall uh, cedar and cypress trees in the swamp. I've seen elephant tails. No, no, they don't fit that description. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. There's an excellent study. I think it's in a book called... uh, No... It, it's, it's published in Britain, and it may still be in print on Institute for Creation Research, but the author does an analysis of the monster in Beowulf. And he has these short little spindly forearms that have no strength, and he has these hind legs that are massive, and he has teeth that are uh, like iron. It looks like a Tyrannosaurus rex. And so there's these different stories that have survived in many different civilizations, from South America to Scandinavia, of people dealing with animals and creatures that look amazingly like what we talk about as dinosaurs, which was a word invented invented in the mid nineteenth century. So if you went back to George Washington and said, Have you ever seen evidence of a dinosaur? You wouldn't know what you were talking about. But if you said, have you ever seen evidence of a dragon? Yeah, well, maybe. I read about it. The Chinese have dragons in everything. Where'd they get the idea? A dragon looks a lot like many dinosaurs do. Verse 20, surely the mountains yield food for him and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. So he lives in the swamp. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage. So there's a massive river flood, yet he is not disturbed. He's not going to be knocked down by some river rage. Nehemiah. I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well. Where did they get the name of the dragon's well? They just make that up, and on to the refuse gate, that's the dung gate in other translations, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which are broken down, the gates which were consumed by fire. In Isaiah 30, verse 6, uh, the oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev, that's the southern part of Israel, those uh, uh, kibbutzim that were attacked by Gaza, that's down in, in the Negev. Uh, from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent. I don't know about y'all, I don't want to see any flying serpents. I got enough problems with the ones that are just crawling on the ground. They carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasure on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them. Psalm 104, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled, at the voice of your thunder they hastened away. So all of these different passages all talk about what was going on at the time of the, of the flood, this, this worldwide flood. Okay, this takes us down to... Dealing with this last part just before we get into the next section, which is global amnesia. So we'll just stop here and um, I'll read through the rest of Psalm 104 here to get the idea of what is mentioned here. Uh, the water stood above the mountains at your rebuke. They fled in the voice of your thunder. They hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded them. You've set a boundary that they may not pass over that they may not return to cover the earth. That's the Noahic covenant. Verse 11, "...they give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works." He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. See, God is the one who is intimately involved in all of the cycles going through, um, going through the um, the earth. It's not just chance. So God is the one that is in charge. So next time we'll come back and look at the next section on global amnesia. And then I think there's an appendix that comes in here dealing with where the cavemen come from, and we'll look at that a little bit. So that will finish up 7. Then week after next, so that will be around the 13th, I think, or 14th, then um, we'll get into Unit 8, Lesson 8. Now that's just going to be one night on Lesson It's a review section, so we'll go back and we'll review some things, tie some things together. And then after that, Right before Thanksgiving we'll get into the next section. They have these go for about eight lessons and the every eighth lesson is a is a review. So we should be starting the second major section by the time we get back. Okay? Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word to see how it accurately represents the way things were on the earth, and that if they are looked at objectively, we can see that there's clearly evidence there that substantiates a younger earth on the one hand. Number two, it substantiates that you are the sovereign of your creation, you maintain your creation, and that your creation is not something that is ruled by chance plus time, but it is ruled by your sovereign power. And that even though we can uh, dirty our nest, as it were, we can't destroy it that you are going to always sustain things, and we will uh, discover ways that you have built into creation in order to handle the way things are messed up by our foolish decisions. So, Father, we pray that this would encourage us to trust your word over experience, over anything else that comes along, that your word is absolute truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.